Hey, Shay here. A little note about today's episode. We had a technological hiccup and lost a huge chunk of our audio. It was mainly April's audio and we just could not get it back. It is lost forever in the ether somewhere. Um, and she had some really great insights, and so we're pretty devastated that we lost it. But with scheduling and life and time, we just couldn't uh, get the time to re-record it. So you'll notice that April kind of drops out of the conversation, and we've also had to cut some stuff. So you'll notice some kind of logical or topical jumps um, as we move forward. But I think you'll still enjoy the episode. We had so much potty mouthed fun on this one. And thanks for hanging in there with us as we learn all of the stuff about podcasting and audio and technology. Yeah, thanks. And I hope you enjoy. Hi, it's Shay. This is April, and this is the Bitch Moms Book Club, a podcast about moms, motherhood, and parenting as portrayed in literature. Disclaimer, we are not about swearing or discussing graphic content. So if you're sensitive to that, or you have your kids or mother-in-law in the car with you, this may not be the podcast for you, right? Uh, okay, how has your week been? My week has been good. Um... We have spent the last two days, almost full days, cleaning this house. And I didn't think it was that bad. Um, but we have been cleaning for two days, nonstop. And everything else is taking a backseat. But can my precious moment be about my husband? So yesterday, I got up at like 6. I went grocery shopping and did all of our weekly grocery shopping. And I brought it home and I unpacked it all onto the counter. And I put some stuff in the fridge and I had breakfast, and then I took like a two-hour nap. And in that two-hour nap, my husband cleaned the living room. He vacuumed the living room. He cleaned and vacuumed the hallway and managed the kids. I didn't see them once, except for the one time that my daughter brought in a fly that she had caught in her hand because my husband was teaching the children to catch flies. Anyway... Aside from that, I didn't even get bugged. And I woke up and I walked out and I was like, whoa. And that just launched us cleaning the entire house in the last two days. Oh, fun. Yeah. Um, my precious moment. We went on a steam train ride this weekend. There's this little town um, like an hour away that they have like a little historic steam train that you can ride for like an hour. And my son like freaking loves trains and so he was so excited um until i knocked his milk out the window and then he was really upset for the rest of the day um, but it was really fun yeah he just was like so excited and just like enthralled and was like just looking out the window and he was like we're on a bridge and there's a river and he was just like it was like the best day of his life was going on a steam train and he was like it's so loud and like look at the tracks um so yeah it was just really fun to like see that and he was just like so bright and happy until the milk incident and now we will watch a video and he'll be like oh i want my milk and i'm like your milk is gone forever buddy sorry but that does kind of bring me to my bitching piece today about just like how selectively focused your kid can be sometimes like 
took okay he was out playing we have two big trees in our front yard that are kind of covered in moss because we live in western washington and he was out there like smacking the tree <laughs> playing at it and he got debris in his eye and he like screamed he came running to me and i was like okay leave the tree out. this is the second time this has happened he did it to a different tree a couple weeks ago got debris in his eye and it was like a whole thing slow learning yeah and then he came to me and i got out of his eye and he went back out there and did the same fucking thing and then starts screaming again it comes back and i'm like leave the damn tree alone <laughs> why i told you to leave it alone anyway so we got it out but i'm just like maybe i don't have to save for college like oh my god <laughs> like you literally did this five minutes ago and you did the same thing he gets it from his dad <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I feel like most kids do that. Uh, for me, my bitch in peace is my son has been drinking out of cups just fine for like months. And in the last week, okay, first of all, in the last week, he will like say he wants something and then he'll go, no. And I'm like, you just said you wanted a cup of milk. And he's like, no milk, water. And I'll be like, okay, and I'll get him some water. And he'll be like, no water, milk. I'm like, you're done. I'm over it. But anyway, so he doesn't get milk anymore in cups because he chucked his milk across the room yesterday. Actually, he smacked it on his dad and then he chucked the rest across the room. So he is just being a pain. Too. In... <laughs> oh. Yeah, he's, he's, he's two later this month, so... Yep. I feel like, two, you can still get by, like, oh, well, like, they don't quite understand and they're still learning. And then three, it's like, I know you know. Because you're doing exactly the opposite thing that I told you not to do and smiling about it. Toddlers mm -hmm. <laughs> are demons. Two and three are both hard. It's just, like, a little easier to, like, let it go when they're two. And then when they're three, it's like, don't understand how much I want to strangle you right now. <laughs> like four is worse. Yeah. Just wait. I don't know. Uh, anyway, okay. Um, do you have a kids book? Because I have one that I wanted to share too. Um, I do. But do you want to record each, and then we can? Yeah, we'll do both. Okay. So go ahead with your book first. Okay. So I just we got this book from the library click clack moo cowslet type and i just i thought it was just very we have that as a board book hilarious yeah, we um i just thought it was very uh relative to the current uh, atmosphere of all the striking workers across various fields within the u.s right now uh so yeah we got it this week and um it's click clack moo cowslet type by doreen cronin pictures by betsy lewin and it's uh, cows that get a typewriter and they demand blankets from the farmer uh, and they go on strike with the chickens um, until they get their blankets. And so, yeah, civil disobedience. Teach your kids civil disobedience <laughs> and negotiation skills. And I was like, this is perfect for uh, we're still on the uh, I don't know if the strike will still be going on by the time this episode comes out. 
probably. Uh, but we're still going on with that strike. So it's like this perfect, perfect timing for this book. So which one have you got? Um, I have Miss Rumpheus. It's about a girl who um, at her grandfather's knee learned that there were three things that you... I Barbara Coney? Cooney. I th- yeah, I think so. Um, but it it is about the story of a girl who at her grandfather's knee learned that you have to improve the world in three different ways. Um, and the one that I love is, um, let's see, travel the world, live by the sea, and to make the world more beautiful. So in it, she travels the world, she helps other people, um, she gets old and she returns to live by the sea, but she still hasn't done the third thing, which is to make the world more beautiful. So she gets some seeds and a little cottage by the sea and she puts the seeds in her garden, but then she gets really sick and so she can't get out of bed for a while. Well, the next year she sees in the spring, she sees these beautiful um, lupine flowers. And so then she's like, oh, I wonder if I could do more. So then the next year she goes over the hill and she sees lupine flowers all over. She's like, oh, the wind blew them. So what she does is she orders more seeds, like tons of seeds. And she spends the entire summer and fall walking around the island, throwing seeds everywhere. So the next year there are lupines everywhere on the island and it's like a big thing so they call her the lupine lady and um yeah it's just really beautiful it i i love the pictures and the imagery um it's just really really pretty thanks for sharing yeah um so look out for miss rumpheus and click clack moo cowslet type we will have them up on our bookshop that you can um order through there let's switch over to our grown-up book for the day. We're so excited to have Sarah Reed join us today to talk about her debut novel, Johanna Porter is Not Sorry, a novel about middle-aged Johanna Porter, a one-time protege and lover of a famed artist. 20 years later, after receiving an invitation to an elite gallery opening set to feature a portrait of her younger self, Johanna digs into the raw work of reviving her own skills while battling novice thief paranoia, imposter syndrome, and mom guilt. So Sarah, welcome to the show. Thank you. I'm delighted to be here. Yeah, um, I surprisingly, we both really loved your book. I that doesn't sound very nice, does it? <laughs> you realize that Jen, came out. <laughs> like, not, I know. It's just, like, I just generally don't read a lot of contemporary fiction. Uh-huh. Um, and not to say that Johanna's old, but she's older than mm-hmm. I am. And so I'm like, I don't ever feel like I really, like, relate. Right? We just read things that we relate right. to. Uh, and so I was like, oh, I'm, like, surprisingly really. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah. So... Yeah, I've really, I really liked it. And then I was like, April, you have to read this. She was. And I so identified with a lot of what Johanna went through, mm-hmm. um, kind of refinding herself after having kids. And um, I'm starting to learn how to draw. So it was kind of an mm. interesting parallel to my own life as I was like, oh, I like this. So, um, you know, that buy cheap paper thing. Yeah. Um, I was like, oh, I guess I should do that. <laughs> Um, so that has helped my own journey. Yeah. Thank you. Cool. That's so awesome. Sarah is like the mom I aspire to be in 10 years when my kid is a teenager. Um, she's the mom I want to be when I grow up. So. 
<laughs> Maybe you should ask my kids about that. Just just check if that's okay. <laughs> Nobody thinks their own parents are cool. <laughs> Uh, so yeah, tell, tell us a bit about yourself, Sarah. Tell- well, I'm Sarah. Um, I am the mom of uh, two teenage daughters, 19, almost 19 and almost 17, which is hard to believe. Um, I am a registered nurse. I am taking a brief sabbatical from nursing right now, which is really, really nice because I have a lot of writing things going on. I got back into writing kind of seriously a little less than 10 years ago and just kind of found that at, you know, 43 or whatever it was, um, I actually like had stories to tell, you know? So I worked very hard. I queried, um, three novels and the third one got picked up by my amazing agent, um, Laura Bradford and sold to my spectacular editor, Kat Klein at an imprint called Graydon house. And, um, and that's Johanna Porter is not sorry. I live in Charlottesville, Virginia. I have more pets than I really want. Um, my husband's a professional musician. We, you know, it's an interesting life. Sarah, uh, what inspired this book that you have? Joanna Porter is not sorry. So um, it's interesting. Every project is different. Um, but this one, she kind of appeared to me fully formed, like, you know, what was it? Athena from the head of Zeus, you know? Um, like I had a very clear picture of this woman who was a total hot mess. Um, but who was really driven to reclaim some vital part of herself. Um, And it all just kind of went from there. Like she had a very strong, and this was convenient for me as the, like the novel that I sort of taught myself to write on. She had a very strong desire and motivation from the get go. Like I knew exactly what she wanted and she wanted it really, really bad. Um, And then I just had to figure out everything else in the book. But with that at the core, it makes it so much easier. Can I swear on this show? Yes. Okay. It's in our, it's in our, it's kind of in your name. (laughs) Okay. I, I do remember reading the first couple pages and I think the word fuck is in there. Like, eight times. And I was like, wow, this woman is ticked. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, oh my. You're just in Utah and aren't here used to hearing all of the swear words. No, I'm not. Um, and really the people who swear around me are like you and our friend. Well, I really feel like women and moms swear a whole lot more mm-hmm. than anybody ever admits to. And I do. I think mm-hmm. I swear now more as a mom than I did yeah. before. <laughs> and then we get together and we let it rip and it's like, you know, but we've still sort of got a little bit of this Puritan, like, um, you know, I'm not supposed to say those bad words, you know? So I think there was a little something like I've heard that from a couple people that yeah. there was a little something liberating about her language, you know, that it was like, oh yeah, like that's yes. what me and my friends do. <laughs> We're really fed up. Yeah. <laughs> uh, okay. So also kind of talking about, uh, like if we kind of build off of swearing and mother and like this puritanical sense of 
moms and women, um, you have kind of been known for your distaste for the label of women's fiction, which is <sighs> what your book is often sold yeah, as or labeled yeah. as. Um, so like, what is it about the term that gets you? Okay, I think we're classifying an entire, very big, broad body of work by not only a gendered label, but a stereotypically gendered um, so the Women's Fiction Writers Association, which is a great association. I'm a member. I love what they do. I've gotten a lot of benefit from that organization. They define women's fiction as something to the effect of that the, the main storyline is the emotional growth of the character. And that is, to me, so broad as to be almost meaningless. But there's always an internal growth. Like there's... And that I've... Yeah. I've read some books by men that have like absolutely no, no emotion, no internal growth. Yeah. All right. Yeah. Maybe I'm just not reading those books, but I mean, it's such a broad category that it almost doesn't mean anything. Yeah. I think it drives a certain type of marketing. And, you know, fortunately we're marketing to women who buy more books. I don't know. I just, I really struggle with the, the gendered nature of that category. Yeah, I um, I also feel like a lot of anything that's sort of labeled women sort of automatically lower tier gets thought as lesser, right? It's sort of like throwing on it's mm -hmm. almost like saying a mini something or like um and like right, like how many I don't know. Like I've sort of been thinking about like books that get published in hardback versus books that don't. Mm -hmm. And I'm trying to think if like a lot of women's fiction gets published in hardback. I don't think it does. Yeah. Um, whereas a lot of thrillers get published in hardback, suspense, mysteries. Things um, written by men. But see, I men. prefer a paperback. See, so, I do too. So it's not it's not like a status thing, but it is. is not, I mean, for me, I mean, it is like in yeah. the industry. But for me, I'm not like, oh, I didn't get published in hardback. So I've got my panties in a twist. Like that's not <laughs> what's happening. But it you know, you, you mark it as a, as a female thing. And then, yeah, all of a sudden, like all this other cultural shit attaches to it. Mm -hmm. And um, I don't know, I just don't think it's necessary, but maybe it is. I don't know. I would love to talk to somebody who had like a really good defense of that, mm -hmm. you know, as a marketing category. I like being in a marketing category. I think it's probably better than just being general fiction, but. Yeah. I think it's also. I have this idea of like women's fiction. And again, this is probably just like internalized misogyny, but like this idea of women's fiction being, you know, like soft and gentle and like yours starts with the word fuck essentially. <laughs> and just like, Well, and I, I think that's what readers think yeah. too. Um, and fortunately re a lot of readers don't even really know that that's a category. So that's mm -hmm. good. Um, but a lot of them think the same thing. They think like it's about Nantucket and the beach house and saving the old B&B. &B. And actually, it was really funny when I was and not to put down those books, but like, you know, it's there's a certain like vibe. Um, like it's either like trauma porn or it's like the stakes are so low that it just. They're just waiting for the hot, the hot silver fox to show up and. In this book, there isn't a knight in shining armor except for Johanna. Yeah, she is her own knight in shining armor. Uh, yeah, so let's jump into the book. Um, and for anyone listening, 
This is our general spoiler alert for the book. We are going to give away all the details. We're going to give out the ending. So if you want to read the book first and then come back to this after, go ahead and do that. Or if you want to use this as your spark notes, go for that too. Still buy <laughs> Sarah's book though. <laughs> uh, okay, so we open with uh, Johanna, who is very angry uh, and she is gets this invitation to a gallery opening for one Nestor Pinedo. Pinedo? Pinedo. Pinedo. Okay. Pinedo. Um, and Sarah, do you want to tell us a little bit about Johanna, just like as a character? Who is she? Who? So she was a rising star in the art world herself. Like she was in her early 20s, really great painter, like starting to have some really, you know, significant success in New York. Yeah. Various things go down. But the point being that she then spends the next 20 years, she has a daughter who really transforms her life and like kind of rescues her spirit in a lot of ways. But also, it's just like she's sort of made this series of decisions over the years that have led to the loss of her self. creative self, you know, of like this really important part of herself. And she's harboring some serious um buried rage about it and she so she like she's an art teacher at like a high school right yeah she's an art she teaches art at her daughter's private school so first she's also divorced yeah. and her daughter is amazing like the relationship <laughs> can we just address this real quick the relationship between mel and johanna mm -hmm. is so refreshing and beautiful. There aren't books out there really that have a positive relationship between the parents and the kids. Yeah. yeah. Why can't we tell those stories? There are a lot of books. Yeah. There's a lot of books about conflict between, between parents mothers and, and daughters, kids. especially. But, um, mothers and daughters, especially. Yeah. So that was really fun Good. to write. I loved it. Mel was really fun to write. Yeah. Yeah. So she has this 17 year old, super sporty, super sporty, like super high level um, soccer player. She's been recruited to a, to a division one school to play soccer. And she's like, lots of energy, lots of feelings, but, but they are really like bonded in a cool way. I think we had talked about this in another episode that I ended up cutting out, but um, just like, why, why are like, why are there always so much like bad parent child relationships? Like, well, mm. I think they just tend to be more interesting. Uh, <laughs> like, It's just more interesting. Right? Like sometimes it's just not that interesting to read about like the vanilla family. Right. Well then, and this book is not about the relationship between mm. Mel and Johanna. Johanna's a mother, but the book is not about motherhood right like so many books i've read it's like if there's a mother in it it's about motherhood or if there's a mother in it that character is about motherhood you know or it's like they have a baby this happens a lot in like young adult or like fantasy genre i've noticed is like they'll have a baby and then like that's the end of like you never see the baby again <laughs> so it's either like it's just two ends of the spectrum where it's like it's only about them being a mom or like it's about them having a baby like right like your book's that good middle of like that's pretty indicative of like most women it's like i'm not to say that women who stay at home are you know just being moms but like even the women who stay home are 
other things beyond we all mom. have fully formed identities outside of our roles as mothers i mean it's it, it's a big part of who we are it's all grown in and interwoven into everything that we are but it is not everything that we are mm -hmm. you know unless you're in utah <laughs> <laughs> right so i have to be careful with the word we yeah. no no word. i agree but <laughs> the thing, you know Shay and I have this conversation yeah. all the time that I am more than just a mom yeah. and like, I'm not just a mom, like right. that almost belittles it, but like, mm -hmm. that's just part of my identity, but it's not the whole me. Yeah. I want something else. And so, but in my culture here in Mormonville, Utah, um, you know, the highest aspiration you can be is a mother. And so this, this book is so refreshing because, because it's not about motherhood but yeah. it's such a feature in her life. Mm -hmm. Like it's a constant thing, but it's not. And it's a positive feature and she's right. doing a good job, yes. even if she's yes. kind of fucking up in, in interesting ways. <laughs> yes. You know, like. Yeah. You can still fuck up your own life while being a good mom and not right. fucking up your kids. You can. <laughs> yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, yeah. So then she doesn't want to go to this, this gallery. We don't quite know why yet. Um, we get some inkling that like there's some stuff that happened there uh and then her daughter convinces her to go and she's and they like go tries, shopping yeah she like tries to get out of it she's like i don't know what to wear and her daughter like i just think of like shopping montage of like every <laughs> like teen girl movie where they're like this credit card is for emergencies and this is an emergency and mel like pulls that it's like we're gonna go get right. you all dressed up Right. Only she takes her mom. It's not like her yeah. and her teenage friend. <laughs> and they go so, to a thrift store. Yeah, yeah. I was going to say it's very Gen Z of her to be like, we're going to go to a thrift store slash consignment store. It's also very Gen X of her mom. So, yeah. <laughs> uh, so they go and uh, uh, yeah, they go. She gets a dress and then they she goes to the gallery we get there and she goes into a back room. She meets uh, Pilar. 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 She meets Pilar, Pilar. who is yeah. Nestor's daughter. Yeah. And um, they have kind of a cold, cold reunion. She gets taken into a back room where well, she sees Nestor first. Mm -hmm. Nestor yeah. and his biographer. And then he takes her to the back room. Right. Which I think is kind of an important plot point because it's showing that he's like hey i still own you mm -hmm. right it's mm -hmm. that power dynamic between the successful well-known man and the woman whose career was destroyed yeah uh, and then we unveil the piece de resistance which is la rosa blanca yeah la rosa blanca is a portrait of johanna herself when she was young, like 23, 24, um, it's her back and she's looking over kind of sharply over her shoulder, holding a red pencil with kind of a fuck you look in her eyes. And which is how she felt towards Nestor at that moment. But it's also really a masterpiece of a painting. Like Nestor is really like he is a misogynistic dick but he's an incredible painter and it ha it carries all this power for no one more than for johanna herself you know and she sees it and she's like oh 
my God, you know? Oh, I was going to say, and it's this painting in this moment of seeing her, how she was so dynamic and feisty that makes her want to reclaim that. Yeah. In, in a really beautifully. Yeah. Yeah. Like empowering way. She's just, this is mine and I'm not, I'm mm -hmm. tired of hiding in a corner yeah. and being just an art teacher and just a mom. Sage Green Day. Uh, yeah. So we don't. We don't get the full history here, but we sort of start to get inklings of like the relationship between Johanna and Nestor. Um, sort of it was sexual and professional and advantageous <laughs> for one of them. Um, so I I think it's this is it's something that happens a lot in history of like how young women are taken advantage of through all of those all of those means, right? They are taken advantage of sexually so that they can get ahead professionally and we see this come up a lot like in hollywood and we hear lots of stories about it even like academia um you know men sort of pose as mentors but mm. really just end up using them as a toy uh and then nestor essentially destroys her do you kind of want to explain like what happens with their relationship, like how it goes bad. What I wanted to be deliberate about at this relationship between Nestor and Johanna is that Johanna went into it knowing this was going to be a sexual relationship. And like, she was game for that. Um, she recognized that there was a power imbalance, but she was like, I can learn a lot from this person. I admire him. I have fun with him. Sex is great. You know, it wasn't that he lured her in and then took advantage of her sexually, um, but he betrayed her in a different way, which was that after they, they had been together for a while, he had other mistresses, he had a wife, like, you know, full on, like does whatever the fuck he wants kind of guy. Um, and Johanna's one thing that she did not understand was that the same rules did not apply to her. And so as things were kind of petering out, she didn't see him as often. He had some other mistress, you know, she was like, this is kind of coming to a natural conclusion and that's okay with me. Um, she never thought this was going to be the love of her life. You know, it was like, not like that. And then she goes and she has a fling with a bass player in a punk rock band. And as you she do, is... <laughs> <laughs> my husband plays the bass. <laughs> Not in a yeah, punk but... rock band. It's just a garage band. But... So, um, yeah, got to put a hot musician in there somewhere. <laughs> um, and she is spotted by Pilar and Pilar tells Nestor and Nestor's masculine. Like his his tender little cojones are so are so vulnerable and so traumatized by the fact that Johanna is sleeping with a bass player that you know he takes it as this incredible affront um that his woman should need to sleep with someone like it's like it's um like it makes him look bad it's emasculating it's like 
So anyway, he 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 torches her career. So Pilar, his daughter, is his publicist, and she's sort of like the Svengali of that scene. You know, she's got all this power and influence with the galleries and buyers and collectors and stuff. And they just start sowing misinformation about Johanna. They they put it out there that she's inauthentic or she's plagiarizing or she's this or she's that, or or Nestor won't hang his paintings in your gallery if you hang Johanna's paintings. And like, it does not take much. It's a small world. Mm -hmm. And she's basically just like, just pitched off the cliff. It's such a like, it's such a like toddler thing to do. I have a toddler, so I see this a lot where it's like, well, if you don't get me to do this thing, I'm just going to destroy everything. Like, I'm just going to mm-hmm. throw a tantrum. And then, right. uh, but yeah, we keep touching on that double standard of yeah, the men get to do whatever they want and like, and the woman doesn't get right. to get to be that way and she's like she's young she's female she's not well connected she's poor you know like she just can't she just can't fight it there's no way she can fight it and she's and she's like for a long time because i think this is what we do we're like what did i do wrong i should have fought it harder you know i should have been stronger and fought it rather than like this should never have happened to me you know this you know, and it takes her a long time to to get through. Yeah, that. and I later on, uh, Pilar also admits like you're really good, and like you, it also really like affronted her dad that she wasn't another like a ripoff of him that she mm-hmm. had the courage to try and do her own thing and exactly. add to what he taught her, and like. She was threatening. Yeah, she was threatening yeah. in that, like, she could potentially be better than him. <laughs> right, right, exactly. So she wasn't just threatening his masculinity. She was threatening his primacy in the mm-hmm. in the art world. And she was perhaps maybe making him feel like he was, his time was passing, you know? Point. So we are in the room. She's looking at La Rosa. She's there by herself. She ends up in the room by herself with the painting and sort of, in the moment makes the decision to take the painting for herself uh, and cuts it from the frame and like shoves it in her coat and runs away to that Chesapeake scene Bay. was so fun to write <laughs> when she like rolls it up and sticks it in her coat and she's like oh bye-bye thank you for having me at your party i gotta go you know and then she puts it in her car and she's like holy fuck what have i just done you know she's like She's like thrilled, but also horrified. And yeah, so she so she rolls off to the to the Chesapeake Bay where her dad has this little house like this is not a big beach house a la, you know, fucking Hamptons and shit. This is like this is like her dad has a little it's a little cardboard box. It's like a shoebox of a house on the water that he's had for 50 years. She goes in there and she's like, "Uh, what do I do now? There's like a bottle of bourbon, a stick of butter and a jar of essentials, butter, pickles and (laughs) but no coffee. Yes, that's a problem. That's Uh, so she's in the house and Mitchell McCleary makes an appearance. 
they have the interesting timing of like, he's coming over to her house to ask her something. And she has just dropped the last remaining coffee on the floor and it's completely unsalvageable. And she, and she just like loses her shit and, and grabs a jar of pickles and hurls the jar of pickles in a general direction. It winds up hitting the front door. It's like, boom, glass everywhere. And he's like walking up to the door and he's like, holy shit. And so he like throws the door open and he's like expecting somebody's getting murdered in there. Just a dressed. But she's dressed in a very ridiculous way. Like, I think she's still like, she's got like sweatpants and the party dress is like half undone, but she's got like a hoodie on top and like something Hot mess express. Like I mean, she, <laughs> hot mess yeah uh yeah and matt mitchell mccleary is the hot surgeon staying in the house down the road he's like the silver fox surgeon that shows up uh yeah and then they don't really she doesn't really think about him that much the first time but i mean he shows up you know chekhov's gun hot man shows up we got a bang sometime right <laughs> <laughs> It's all about it's all about the contract with the reader, you yeah. know. Like you make a promise there, you gotta fulfill it. Uh, anyway, so they meet and then he like goes away and does his boat thing. Uh, and while she's there kind of ruminating over her actions and her life, uh, she decides to start picking up her art again. Um and finds like an old uh paint set that's got like crusty paint. Um and starts uh, drawing herself, which like took me back to college. My like first summer in college, I I th- decided I was gonna get better art too, and I actually would sit in front of my mirror naked and like draw myself. Um, and my roommates like open the door and I'd be like, "What?" <laughs> <laughs> but it's a really interesting thing to sit there and just like stare, like navel gazing. As you're like learning how to draw figures, uh, I'm not good at it again because I haven't done it in a long time. But uh, yeah, she decides to to pick up her art again. This is like almost the heart of the book to me. That about what a struggle about the creative process and what it is really like trying to create something good. You know, trying to learn to do something well, like, and it can be art. Like, I did not want to write a book about a writer. So, but I really wanted to write about the creative process. And so, but, and it's, there's, there's similarities. There's this struggle to, you know, Ira Glass refers to it as, as the discrepancy between your ability and your taste and having those, you know, like having those two things be so far apart from one another and what a struggle that is. And, and and how you have to continually do your craft and continually watch it fall short of your like what you want it to be until you get to the to the point where you're like ah there it is and then you and then you push that point further out you know so in order to like keep improving with a craft, you're constantly moving the edge of the cliff out you know <laughs> and you're constantly trying to get to a point that you're not at yet and just how hard that is and how hard it is to do after you haven't done it in a long time um how hard it is to prioritize that particularly when you are a mom and you do have other obligations and 
and you struggle with that, like, mm-hmm. this is the mom guilt, you know, you struggle with that. Yeah. Uh, yeah, it's, I think it's interesting. Like, she doesn't, she doesn't give up painting because of her child. It's just like another thing that happens in her journey after she's sort of, her career is destroyed. Um, but it is something that happens a lot especially with creatives because one everyone's like everyone always puts down the creative field of like it's not lucrative it's not getting you anywhere it's not you know you can't if you make a million dollars on in a creative field like it's one in a million that you're gonna have that right and this idea of like we have to you to be a good mother you have to basically martyr yourself and your own interests and likes um and which is like such a new thing like it's a pretty new thing to think that's not always been the traditional model of like moms are martyrs i mean once upon a time in the 50s people were like given barbiturates all the time and so like yeah they're basically on crack while they're trying to like raise their kids and clean their house um uh but like i think i read this statistic that our working moms today spend more time like dedicated time with their kids than stay-at-home moms did in the 70s um and it's like there's a lot of factors for that but it's like we just we there's this idea that like you have to essentially like have your kid next to you the whole time and you can't do anything for yourself and this is an american thing Mm -hmm. too like i spend a lot of time in finland and this is not how they think um and not how they operate as parents but we have i think in develop this cultural idea that the ideal thing, like the apotheosis of, of, of what is good for children is to have 100% access to their mother 100% of the time. I mean, when I say it that way, you'd look at that and you'd be like, oh no, that's terrible. That's bullshit. That's not good. Right. But when you look at, I think when you look at kind of the way we talk about it, that does seem to be the paradigm behind it, you know, that like I'm taking time for my writing. I'm taking time away from my children to do this creative thing, you know, where I really should be spending time with them. Right. And then spending time is not even enough. You can't be like in the kitchen doing your thing and be like, don't bother me, go play. I'm looking after you. You need to be accessible to them all the time. And you have to be ready to like, and every moment needs to be a teaching moment and intentional. And like- and you have to fucking enjoy it. You have to fucking enjoy every moment. Oh God, that is. I saw this thing that was like, if you homeschool, you get 17,000 more hours with your kid. I'm like, there is no one on this earth myself included that I want to spend an extra 17,000 hours with like nobody that I want to spend every waking minute of my life. And with. is that better? Is that better? Like, I think we have internalized, like, I think even if you have great fucking fantastic parents, it is not better to be with them all the time and to have 24 hour, hundred percent access to them all the time. That is not better. You know, Like in Finland, for example, they really prize um, independence and trustworthiness, you know? And so they send their little kids off on their little bicycles and they're to like go to elementary school, like miles away in the rain, you know? 
like what we call free range parenting is very similar <laughs> to normal Finnish parenting. I, I'm the mom in the neighborhood that like you just see my kid running around butt naked in the front yard. And I always right. I like when someone's passing, I'll call out and be like, hey, come in. But it's like a really half assed like just letting the other people know that I'm around. But I, I can't keep that kid in clothes. If we're home, mm. he's naked and yeah. he doesn't care. And like he's running around. Yeah. I did not expect my parents to play with me. That's what friends and siblings were for. Um, and I do not feel deprived that they didn't. I mean, I did not particularly like playing with my kids. I liked kind of hanging with them and watching their like little brains do these crazy things with the blocks and the dinosaurs and stuff. I was like, that's awesome. And doing the make-believe, I'm like, I'm like, I'm not good at this. I'm not there anymore. Anyway. I'm like, here's some Play-Doh, leave me alone. <laughs> <laughs> He's, I have an only child. And so like before he kind of started getting socialized at like preschool, he just was perfectly fine playing by himself constantly. Mm -hmm. But now he comes to me with his little tiny voice and is like, mama play trains with me and i'm like damn it <laughs> like, i don't want to play trains but you're so cute and you asked me directly and i will be like i will set a timer and i will play with you for five minutes or ten minutes and generally by the time the timer's up he's like go Done. away he's on to he's on to something else yeah yeah like, i know I'm, I'm really i know people are like i'm so sad when my kid turns into a teenager i'm like, really looking forward to oh that. i was i really i've liked it all i read this great there was this great thing in the in the washington post today this interview about this woman who wrote a book about like to, like toxic achievement for teenagers and like how how bad it is like for them anyway but one of the things she said is she, she said i have stopped solving for happiness and i'm solving for mattering like that that I want my kids to feel like they matter, that they are important to me, that I need them, that, you know, it's important that they're here. I need their help. They need to exist in my life, you know, that they matter. And I was like, ah, oh, like really like resonated for me. Um, John is there taking time to herself to pick up her art again and also meet a man. That's not why she's there, but it happens. No. Uh, so Mitchell invites her to go sailing with him because he has an injury that makes him incompetent to sail on his own. Or so he thinks. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> He's, yes. He has a weak, numb right hand. And you really do need both hands to sail, but but he can sort of manage it. But man cold, you know, man flu stuff. <laughs> everything's more, everything's worse when you're a man. Uh, so they go on there, um, and have like a pretty chill time. And then she comes back and Pilar shows up to question her and she brushes it off and is like, I don't know what you're talking about. I definitely don't have the painting. That, so Pilar has gone to, uh, jo Johanna's ex's house and then she finds out about that and she's like, oh fuck, she, Pilar is coming here. I have to hide this thing and I cannot hide it in the house. So she runs over to Mitchell's, unbeknownst to him, gets on his boat, goes down into the cabin and hides it in this forward hold that never gets used. Mm -hmm. So the painting is now on his boat. Yeah, so she's made him, an, so far he is an unknowing accomplice. <laughs> uh, then Mel also shows up and they have a quick 
chat and she tells Mel, like, I'm going to quit my job. I'm going to get back into art. And Mel is like so supportive and does the thing that all Gen Z kids do. And they're like, I'm going to start you an Instagram. <laughs> like, gets her bones like, you got to do this. Her, she's just so supportive. Um, I feel like teens get a bad rap for like being really, uh, I being really wrapped up in themselves. But I teach a lot of teens and like, they're actually like really yeah like they get moments where they're pretty selfish but like they're also still children we kind of forget that i also think we don't give them enough opportunity to be useful mm -hmm. and to matter you know mm -hmm. and when you do they're like yeah i'll do that especially yeah. if it's like something they already find fun or they feel like they're good at you know yeah and like they just are like so so my next door neighbor's kid isn't a, a teenager yet but like he's way older than my kid and at the park He's usually like the nicest kid at the park to my kid. And I'm like, you're way bigger than all the other kids. And I'm like, teenagers get a bad rap, but they're like yes, actually really do. sweet. They're just kind of annoying sometimes. Um, but I get annoyed by most people, honestly. They have big feelings. <laughs> yes. Uh, so Mitchell starts to kind of hang out more and she starts to paint Mitchell uh, we still don't bang yet. It takes a really long time, Sarah. It's like I'm halfway sorry. through the book. <laughs> I know. It's not a romance, so it's not going to like, you know, the beats are wherever. Yeah. Uh, and then the cops show up again. Uh, and the cops prompt her to uh, admit to Mitchell what she said. Like, my question was, that, I was like, why does she tell him? Why doesn't she just let it be a secret that he doesn't know about? Like, why get him involved? <gasps> Because it's the only way that she can explain why she emerged from the cockpit of his boat while he was already halfway out to sea. So they go, so she, she gets the painting to bring it back to the house because she needs it. And then she sees the police coming and she is like, oh shit, like they are in my driveway. And so she grabs the painting. She runs out the back of the house, like behind all the brambles and everything up the up the shoreline to Mitchell's house. And she's like, gotta get it back in the boat because the police are like at her door. And so she jumps on the boat and she like puts it back in the hold and she's about to get out and Mitchell gets on the boat. And then he takes the boat out and She's like, oh God, okay, 45 minutes and this will be over. He's gonna realize that it's too windy, but then he's not as experienced a sailor as she is. And then he makes a dumb decision. Like she can just tell by the way the boat's handling that what he's doing. And it's like, this is not gonna go well. Like they're gonna wind up in the water. And, um, and so she bursts out of the cabin of the boat and just about gives Mitchell a heart attack because he thought he was alone on his boat, right? And then she takes over and gets them turned around and gets them back to safety and sort of, yeah. So he's like, why on earth were you on my boat? And, um, and she is just so like stripped bare at that point that she's just like, ah, I can't. So she goes down, makes sure the police have left, which they have. And then she goes and gets out the painting. And she's like, you are the only one who knows anything about this. And he agrees to be her accomplice and is like, okay. Uh, and then they kiss and go about their way. And then and then he shows back up and gives her an STD report, which I like think is hilarious. <laughs> like, he's like, I'm clean. And she's just like, you're a little forward. <laughs> and like, it's just, he's just sort of like this bumbling idiot that you're just like, 
I get the intent, but it was such a wrong move. <laughs> and she's like, teases him. She's like, oh, you think you're going to get some? He's like, sorry. Because you have to rib a guy, right? Like, you have yes. to tear him down. <laughs> when he thinks when he's expecting something she's also like like just so awkward herself she's like oh my god what do i like she like really wants it but she's like oh my god what do i say yeah uh and then she goes to his house they have a drink and they finally fuck uh (laughs) it's really hot just like in the kitchen uh happens real fast um so i really wanted to have this conversation with you about like sex in books and film like this is a this is a topic that comes up kind of a lot within uh literature and like cinema world is like the point of sex and a lot of people in there are like there's too much sex and stuff um i mean i know a lot of mormons so yeah they're all gonna be like there's always sex and stuff but uh and it's in in english classes or in college um we kind of have this adage that like everything is about sex except for sex, which is about power. Um, <laughs> and so like, that's always sort of like been my thing about it is like, I can see where it like gets pointless and gratuitous. Um, and the example that always comes up for me is Bridgerton. Like everyone's like, there's like way too much sex in the first season. And I was like, yeah, sex sale sells, but also the whole point of the first season, I don't know if you guys have watched it is like, she's having a sexual awakening. Like she's never, you know, she doesn't, she didn't even really know the mechanics. She barely knew, like, she didn't know how babies were made. Uh, and, like, the whole point of that is, like, this guy comes into her life and, like, opens her up that way. No pun intended. Uh, and and then, then in the second season, there's not as much. And it's like, well, that makes sense because the main character is a sexually experienced man. And so the point mm-hmm. of his story is to, like, learn how to love and not mm-hmm. how to just have sex. Um, and so like, I kind of can make sense of that. Um, but like you, you know, you, you have a take a long time and then you get it. And we also don't get a lot of middle-aged sex in anything. Um, and you wrote that. And I, I think that yes, sex can be about power and is about power a lot of the time, but I think sex can also be about growth and getting out of your head and changing your consciousness that if you have a good sexual relationship with somebody, it can give, I feel like that can um, really generate good things in your life. Like it can make it easier for you to get closer to who you really are and feel safer and feel more, you know, creative and softer. And it's just like, like having good sex can be a good thing for you in your life. Um, and I don't think that that has not been getting represented in literature to my satisfaction. Yeah. <laughs> Like when I read kind of literary fiction, the sex is really clinical. It really is about power. It's or it's about just it's so fucking awkward and all the negative things that it reveals about people, you know, and I was like, okay, you know, that's one way sex can go. But it's not the only way sex can go. Sex can go really well. And you can have really good sex with somebody like over a long period of time and it can be really good for you and it can be 
something that brings you closer to who you really are and who you want to be. Um, and I also think that a lot of the sex that's represented in, in books that are like not literary fiction, but like romance or rom-coms or even women's fiction is kind of idealized. And it's a lot about awakening or, um, or just like sheer pleasure or, you know, it's like very visceral and sexy and fun to read, but it's not, it's like the romance changes the person. The sex does is sort of just like part of the romance. You know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. So for Johanna in this book, her relationship with Mitchell is going to change her, but also just like getting laid and feeling good and like having that part of her be satisfied is good for her, you know, and it's good for the relationship. And like, I don't know, this whole sex positivity thing is something that, that I am like, I am on board with that. I think we've seen a lot of negative or hyper idealized representations of sex. And I think that just gives us all like a little bit of like, well, what the fuck's wrong with me? You know? that I'm not getting sex like that. Young people have sex in books and like, we don't want to see it, but it's like, mm. they don't like. Oh my God, that, that, okay. That's the other thing. That's <laughs> the other thing. I'm getting very interested in like all these ways that ageism pops up all, it is all over our culture and nobody talks about it. And this idea that like 40 year olds aren't having sex. It's like, I'm sorry, I got laid way more in my 40s than I ever did in my 20s. I enjoyed it. I was just listening to a podcast that says like a lot of people expect like as they age, they're just like their libido is going to go down. But it really isn't like the case. It's much later than you think, yeah. you know, and even then it depends on there's a lot that what's happening in your life. So she starts this kind of relationship of yeah she starts his relationship with mitchell um and he then reveals a secret to her that he is an addict an opiate addict well he does not reveal it she discovers oh, yeah. it yeah he does have chronic pain but she's like she's like mm -mm, like you are not bullshitting me i know what this is and but he's like no this isn't what it is you know he's like really I'm not an addict. I'm not taking it to get high. You know? Yeah. And she's like, mm, you do not know yourself and this is not good. And it ties back into some, some very painful family history for her. Yeah. She learned, we learn, the audience learns that she, her mom died of an overdose, right? Mm -hmm. um, an, ac an accidental overdose of barbiturates actually. Um, and so she's like really aware of that and like kind of struggles with that as well um and also is like struggles with like how much she wants him to be involved in her outside life rather you know she's sort of like in this bubble of the chesapeake bay as you know as this art thief mm -hmm. um and she's like do i allow him into my circle outside of the world and so like we get mel as sort of the the testing ground for that uh, mel comes up for the weekend uh yeah and then while they're while mel's there a storm comes through and topples a tree into their cabin and they end up staying with mitchell um and so it sort of like really seals the deal for like they have to know each other now um 
And then because she does, you know, she doesn't really have a place to stay. She can't stay with Mitchell forever. She goes back to the city um, and really decides that she's going to start applying her artistry in that sphere of her life. He basically breaks up with her because he says he's going to go back to his wife and try and get his career back because he's still in like super denial about his injury and his addiction. And Johanna is kind of heartbroken, but she's like, okay. Doesn't destroy her. She's got other things to worry about. Yeah, she's kind of destroyed, but yeah. you know, she's like, oh, just gotta, she doesn't you know, do the thing that doing. all those like, uh, like old books do where they like die from heartbreak. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no. And she's got a job to do, yeah. you know. Uh, and then Mitchell overdoses. Uh, he calls her and she has to go out and rescue him. So she saves his life basically again. Um, <laughs> And she's like, you need to get your shit together. And he's like, you were right. I really do. Um, And then uh, she meets with Pilar. Yeah, we skipped a key piece, which is right after the storm, when she's getting ready to go back up to the city, she realizes that La Rosa Blanca is gone. Mm -hmm. Like it's not on the painting is not on Mitchell's boat anymore. She doesn't know who has it. Like she doesn't. She thinks probably it was Pilar, but she's like, oh, yeah so anyway and then when she's up in dc and she meets with pilar and pilar is like yep i have it and here's what we're gonna do we're gonna like basically shame my father into oblivion by making it look like it was a giant publicity stunt and here's what you're gonna do and she lays it all out yeah Uh, and she (laughs) gives johanna back the painting which was like yeah that was pilar's fault like she shouldn't have given it back i don't know what she expected uh and so johanna ends up with florosa again just like says fuck it to to pilar's plan and now to pilar's credit like she is hanging a felony conviction over johanna's head like Mm -hmm. If you don't do this, I turn the whole thing into the police and you go to jail, you know. Yeah. And so the the new plan, Johanna's plan, is to take La Rosa back to Chesapeake and she erases it, essentially. Um, and which I thought interesting. I was like, why doesn't you she know, burn it? Like, do you, she doesn't... About, do you want to answer that question? Why doesn't she like... Even, even deciding to destroy it at all is a big turning point for her. Like she's got it in this, in this sealed up waterproof gun case and she's planning to hide it in this wildlife refuge. Um, But it's like, she realizes that she can't do that and, and comes around to that. She has to, she has to destroy it. She sands it off. She sands it down. So this is what um, some artists do. And this is what artists used to do when canvas was, um, maybe more precious or artists who really don't have a lot of money, you know, they'll like sand, you know, maybe they'll do practice studies or something like that. And then you like take a block of wood and a, you know, piece of sandpaper and you sand off the paint and reuse the canvas um, so that you can have like a nice smooth surface again. And so she does that, but then it leaves an after image. It leaves kind of a ghost image on the, on the canvas, which is what happens. 
And she's like, okay, well, then she cuts it up because it's a lot easier to cut now that it's thinner and doesn't have as much pain on it. And she cuts it up into little pieces and sticks them in her pocket. Yeah. It's interesting, like, cause you just brought up, they would reuse the, they would reuse the canvas. And it's like, oh, it's a way of like repainting essentially starting. You don't get a brand new canvas. There's still that ghost of like what happened in the past, but she gets to lay a new image over it. I mean, she cuts it up, but her new image is using a sail, which is her own medium and redoing her own story in her own medium, completely, um, completely separate from Nestor and what he even taught her to do. Uh, and so I just thought that was really like coming as a lit professor, that was just sort of my very metaphorical idea of, of how that worked, uh, whether you intended it to be that way or not. Yeah. Yeah. Like she incorporates that image of herself, her prior self, all of those experiences, the theft of her career and her confidence and everything. Like she erases it and then reincorporates it into this artwork that's her like she doesn't paint little canvases like that that's not her gig like she paints these big sort of sculptural things um and i had a lot of fun writing the part where she takes this tiny little handful of like paint dust out into the rain and it just like it just like runs through her fingers into the bay that was something that in my mfa i kind of learned um was just like, I, I had this idea of like what literature was, what I was supposed to be writing mm -hmm. as like a professional, you know, educated writer. Right. And then my professors are like, why? Like, right. you're writing a Western, like write the Western. And I was like, I don't want to write a Western. Westerns aren't like serious literature. Uh, and then I did it anyway. So <laughs> then I was like, this is this is really what I what I'm doing. the best version of yourself is you doing it for yourself and not necessarily for anyone else. Um, and then Pilar comes and sees it and... Yeah. Yeah, so Pilar comes to the house and Pilar is like, like both Johanna and Pilar are like really a hot mess again. Like they are like both, Johanna is completely at the end of her rope and Pilar is like wet and her mascara is running and this is so un-Pilar of her, you know? And she's like, and they have this big fight, you know, Pilar's like, we had a deal. I'm going to turn you in. I'm going to call the cops. And she picks up her phone and Johanna like knocks the phone out of her hand and is like, no fucking way. And they let this big fight, you know, and, um, and through it, they like come to this kind of understanding and Pilar, I would really love to write another character like Pilar. I just wound up loving her by the end of the book, you know? She's just sort of like she was this bitchy woman that you're just like, you know what, though? Like, you gotta be. You just, that's her. <laughs> like, she's so 100% herself. And she is, like, right out on the surface. And she is badass and like she comes in and she sees this artwork that johanna's made out of this old sail like nailed to mitchell's wall and she's like pilar is enraged at how good it is you know she's like oh fuck like like i want you to fucking go to prison i hate your guts but that's so good you know and sort of through that they wind up 
they aren't really friends, but like collaborating, they yeah. understand each other, just sort of like you know, with yeah. knives held at each other's throats the whole time. But like you know, but they've also been like victim of the same mm. man, you know, like her from her father and Johanna as her lover and. Um, yeah, so I just love like all of just showcasing all of the different nuances of like a person um, having all of these things going on in their life, um, which like is like you keep saying hot mess. And I'm like, she just sounds like a human that is trying to do things in her life. Like, I feel like a hot mess sometimes, but I'm like, somehow me and my kid are matching. And I'm like, other people probably don't think that we are. But I'm like, I don't know like this shirt is covered in in yogurt and I'm like we're just all human and we're all hot messes um even if we're not showcasing it um yeah and so that brings us to the end of China Porter is not sorry um so everyone should go read it and buy it um so uh Sarah I just wanted to have a couple of like questions to wrap up before we um let you go um because this is you know a mother's book club but um what what has been your favorite part of parenthood good question my favorite part uh i don't know i have lots of favorite parts um i really um have i really have liked having teenagers like I have a really um, cool relationship with my younger daughter right now, who's still in the house, you know, and um, and it's really taught me so much about like trust and honesty and um, saying sorry. I love watching them develop like their own thoughts and their own opinions about things and worldview and like political ideals and stuff like that, like turning into, I mean, having teenagers is almost like having toddlers again, because like, because there's so much growth, you know, there's like, you like toddlers are like, those years are amazing. Cause like you're watching them learn to walk and talk and then read. And it's like, so great. And then and then the you know the like school years are really great because you get to take a nice breath and they're really cute and sweet and cuddly and often not as challenging. And then the teenage years come and then there's this like huge growth spurt again and it's so I don't know it's just so gratifying to like watch them become their own really their own people. I love that we get so much of like oh teenagers you're gonna have a teenager soon. My parents used to be like, I can't wait until you have a teenager. And I was like, they're like, I hope they're just like you. And oh, I was man. like, I fucking hoped that I got a teenager that was just like me. I was awesome. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. um, what has been your a favorite book that you've read lately? A favorite book that I have read lately. I am not a romance reader almost at all. But I read this romance by Jen Devon called um, Bend Towards the Sun. Um, and it really was great. It was really great. Like the kind of book where I was like, I have to pee and I'm thirsty, but like I, I just can't move because I have to keep turning these pages. Just another couple pages, then I'll go pee. Yeah. Bend Towards the Sun is a very literary title. <laughs> like capital L literary yeah. title. 
where uh what's what's coming up next for you and where can we we find you sarah i am at sarahreed.net on online my website and sarah reed author on twitter instagram and now blue sky and i have another book coming out in january on january 9th which is four days after my birthday which is going to be very fun so this is um it's it's a different it's a standalone women's fiction um about a like really really high level um mathematician basically who solves this like famously unsolvable and famously valuable um proof she gets help from this the one love of her life who re, who like re-emerges in her life after 15 years it's called principles of emotion it is up for pre-order all the yeah, usual places sounds great so everyone pre-order that one thank you so much again for joining us today sarah we've had a really great time talking to you oh thank you me too yeah look out for sarah um for those looking for us, make sure that you like and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Follow us on Twitter or X or whatever the hell it is now. Threads, Instagram. We have, we're, we're around. Go on our link tree and find us wherever. <laughs> See you next time. If I could go back in life, I think I'd have a hoe phase, honestly.